What's very unique about our situation is that we actually started from a research view. Back in the day, 10 years ago, we were trying to leverage this with higher fidelity data, the waveform data, the, the little beeps and boop, but the actual waveforms on the screen to actually build predictive analytics. If I can train a computer to recognize the pattern on that screen or detect an event, then I can recognize those sub-acute patterns in advance and give healthcare professionals early warning, right? Well, here's the thing. If you're building to that Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, I have the privilege of being joined in the studio by Dr. Emma Faust. Now, Emma is the co-founder and CEO of Medical Informatics Corp. Emma, great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time to catch up with us. Well, thanks for inviting me, Des. So let me uh, briefly introduce you to our listeners. Emma Faust is an engineer, researcher, and entrepreneur. She's the co-founder and chief executive officer of Medical Informatics Corp., and a Rice Alliance and DFJ Mercury Venture Fellow. She completed a BE degree in chemical engineering at the Cooper Union. Her PhD is from the University of Virginia in electrical and computer engineering. And she has an MBA from Rice University with a concentration in healthcare. Emma also consults with early stage entrepreneurs with the Texas Medical Center, as well as Rice University on business strategies and as an advisor with the MIT Enterprise Forum and consults on biotechnology, nanotechnology, and risk assessment. An amazing background and an amazing range of experience and and so forth to draw on there, Emma. I'm just fascinated by not only your academic and your career path, but what you are doing there at Medical Informatics Corp. I wonder if we could give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself. Well, I grew up in uh, Richmond, Virginia, on the east coast of the United States. It was, uh, I guess you could describe my early years as definitely a person that was a nerd. Uh, I was a very nerdy uh, child who loved uh, science, art. I actually started uh, doing things like watercolor when I was eight and really got into, I almost went to art school actually. It could have been a completely different path in my life, but ended up falling in love with uh, engineering and building things. I had a chance to do robotics in high school. Uh, I was a bit of a Trekkie. Uh, love sci-fi, and I just I, I found my people in the engineering community. So I, I was sort of drawn to that. Wow, we have so much in common there. I mean, not only we come from a geek background, but we're both Trekkies. You wear a lot of hats. You're from you know engineer, researcher, and entrepreneur, and so forth. I'm curious about how your academic and career path sort of merged to, and evolved to sort of bring you to this amazing uh, uh, position you're in now, not just your role, but also to co-found an exciting company. Well, it's very interesting. I had uh, sort of after my first sort of uh, undergraduate experience in engineering, it was was a little bit rough. And so I was, I wanted to sort of switch uh, gears a little bit. And I ended up going to Europe and living in uh, Germany for a while, uh, doing high cell density cultivations and getting exposed to the academic world and really liked that and ended up coming back uh, to do my PhD at University of Virginia. And you know, it was an interesting opportunity. I had this ability to work with a group that was working with the Woodrow Wilson Center in D.C. on the sort of intersection of government, academia, and industry in the regulation of emergent technology, which at the time was nanotechnology. And um, that fascinated me to get into something that was sort of cutting edge. Uh, how do we deal with that as a society? Like how how do we, one, develop that technology? How does it get introduced into the public sort of use of that technology? And how do you regulate it from a government standpoint? And as I was sort of in this sort of rich academic environment, working with uh, groups at NIST and, and uh, government, 
I got fascinated by this sort of concept of how how do you actually make change as an engineer in this world by bringing technologies and making them uh, broadly adopted? Uh, and that really became sort of the seed or the, the passion that I sort of developed in my graduate studies. And so at that point, it was really sort of just looking for what is the thing that I think is so important to get out there in the world and that could really make a difference? Because I think it, at the core, every engineer, you know, what you want is you want to work on something uh, to transform or solve a problem and have people use it, right? And if you can't actually see it be used, that's, that's sort of a defeating thing. So it's, it's that striving for not just some, but one person to adopt it, but how do I get an entire industry, a global you know, movement around a particular innovation? It's the, uh, the everlasting pent-up engineering frustration, and I built something, why won't someone please <laughs> use it, isn't it? Was anything in particular, or anyone in particular, that sort of inspired you to sort of do what you've done and, and sort of set out to, I guess, develop your own experience and knowledge and capabilities and, and academic and, and hands-on to sort of then go and change the world? Well, I think I've had a lot of fabulous mentors over the years. It's one of those things where I was lucky enough to be exposed through my academic journey uh, to a lot of individuals who had actually themselves become serial entrepreneurs. And I, there was sort of one moment uh, when I was doing my PhD in engineering uh, where I had a chance to partake in a business plan competition. And that was such an interesting experience because it was almost like within 24 hours, I went from sort of this engineering thinking of here's my you know, technology, let me explain to you how it works, to having some you know, serial entrepreneurs with their PhDs and their MBAs look at me and say, yes, you know, that's good on the technology, but let's talk about how uh, we actually tell the business story. And just, you know, it was, sort of a, it was almost like a, a sort of a crash course in business 101. And uh, I got totally hooked. And from then, I, had, you know, I went on to business school and I had a fabulous mentor there, uh, Tom Kraft, who was a serial entrepreneur. And I, you know, glued myself to his side and he would mentor people across different industries. Usually it was tech focused uh, sort of mentorship, but basically meeting with different teams in the medical field and the technical field around Houston and Rice University and helping entrepreneurs break down what it is, what the problems they were trying to solve and how you build that up and how you connect that with the value drivers and the reasons why people make a decision to purchase or adopt a product. And I, I really think Tom Kraft, he, he really sort of transformed the way I thought about sort of optimizing or strategically looking at different business opportunities and also helping me discover the sort of passion for mentoring others as well in this space. It's interesting how many times when I talk to people like yourself that uh, there has been either one or more moments like that that have sort of been a pivot where uh, if you're able to recognize it and grasp it by the throat and hang on to it for dear life, you can just kick off these amazing journeys. You founded your organization and your company, uh, Medical Informatics Corp. or MIC, with your colleague, Dr. Craig Rusin. I think it was back in 2010. So you're about a decade on now, which is success story in its own right. And I'm just fascinated by what you do as an organization, which we'll get into soon. But I wonder if you can give us a, a bit of insight into kind of what a day in the life of Emma Faust is, is like. And I, maybe we can split it into two parts because I think we probably need to recognize that there was a day in the life of, of Emma Faust pre-COVID. And then there's probably a version now. Under normal circumstances, what are the usual sorts of challenges that you would undertake on a day-to-day basis just running the organization and, and leading the team and so forth under your role as, as not just co-founder, but also chief executive officer? Well, it's very interesting. And it's been interesting to be a founder of a company where you start with like two people and then you grow it into an organization of, 
you know, 30 plus, 40 plus people. And, you know, the evolution of your role and how that changes over time, it, it, it does shift. And so I would say I've always looked at my role is helping to create that sort of vision and path forward. Uh, we're a very mission-driven organization. So uh, a lot of, like everybody in the, the team that we've built and we've grown is here to serve others. We're here to really make a difference in the lives of doctors and nurses. A lot of us have either been directly impacted by healthcare or have family in healthcare or the healthcare industry. And we've either grown up, I mean, myself personally, my dad's an anesthesiologist and I just grew up and I have a lot of other doctors in my family too, but I grew up just watching him go day to day in the healthcare profession and sort of saw his struggles that he would face and the ups and the downs. And what I, I think is a tragic uh, situation in many cases is that in the day-to-day practice of many of these care providers, uh, there's not a lot of, I would say, uh, design thinking around how you can optimize their sort of work. And so I guess going back to your question about the day in the life is a lot of what I do is, you know, just strategically look day-to-day of how can I look at the, the the sort of mixture of resources in front of me, whether that's with our partnerships, whether that's with our internal employees, whether that's the financing of the company, and understand how we can, as we say, bit by bit in our company, Saving Lives Bit by Bit, it <laughs> fight off these parts of and these challenges we see for our the people we're fighting for so that they can ultimately uh, save more lives. So, you know, if you wanted to break it down to analytics, right? which really know this company too, uh, you know, 20% of my time, I, I spend actually recruiting and working on the culture. We, we build an intentional culture. So we, we, we have a very diverse team. We have people that are, you know, we have age diversity. We have people from different backgrounds. I often like to think of the fact that most people on our team have a non-traditional background. It wasn't like they went down a path. We have people that came from hospitality. I have people that have worked in criminal law. I have people that have worked in game design, and we're all united together. So my job is to remove people's barriers. And that's really, that is the one thing that does is not change between pre-COVID and COVID. It's like making sure we have the right people, making sure that they have the resources, and making sure that I've removed the barriers for them to be effective. I think the other part, the thing that happened with COVID, um, and that has been also challenging as sort of the executive leader, is that COVID does it a few things. I know that Different people in different industries have a lot of different impacts in, or, of the COVID uh, pandemic on their business. For us, you know, because we specialize in remote patient monitoring, inpatient care, in hospitals around the U.S., clearly our business, sort of the need for our services picked up, right? Right. And so while I know a lot of people went into sort of this hibernation or like, let's figure out how we can work remotely, we were well positioned to work remotely. So we almost, we had actually done drills already. So we, we just sort of slid into that naturally. But then our workload picked up. It was, it, especially during the early days of the pandemic, it was, you get up in the morning and for 12 to 14 hours, you're in constant meetings uh, with your partners, your customers, uh, trying to figure out how to rapidly deploy solutions so that you could help create clinical distancing, reduce PPE utilization, enable people that were quarantined to work, right? Do virtual rounding, those type of things. Um, So it's been quite an intense process. And then of course, out of that, I know, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Intel, but uh, some of the amazing sort of things that came out of that intensive period of 
working with our partners to figure out ways to really accelerate that that help to our customers. That's the day in life. Um, I think the, the other thing that's been the challenge is that COVID in many ways impacts everybody. And it's gonna if it hasn't impacted you yet, it's going to impact you. And that can happen with little warning. And so again, from a management standpoint, it's one of those things where I don't know if tomorrow I'm gonna deal with one of my employees having to take time off to take care of a family member. It's emotionally challenging to go through that and to to be there with your team and constantly try to provide that plan and that guidance for them with, of course, the surge in demand going on and the realization that you're having to deal with these resources that will go in and out of availability. So I'm sure a lot of executives are dealing with that, but I do think that that is something that has been truly felt and a struggle. Uh, there's so many things in that. And, and and when you write your book, I'd like the first copy signed, please. I think it'd be a fascinating story. But um, I mean, firstly, you know, a decade on and you've got a successful business and it's growing at a very, very healthy pace. And congratulations. I mean, that's just an astounding success story. I wonder if we could maybe just get you to give us a brief introduction to your company, Medical Informatics Corp. Because I, I think we've sort of talked about it briefly, but I wonder if you could maybe just introduce this to your company and what your core business is. And we can sort of dive into a bit of the details around that. Medical Informatics is we're a software company that specializes in enhancing patient surveillance. So that includes enabling remote monitoring and predictive analytics uh, within sort of uh, generally it starts within the critical care environments and then sort of spreads out. But uh, think about inpatient care. You're in a hospital uh, hooked up to different monitoring devices and Um, What I think most people don't appreciate if you're not in the healthcare uh, field is that most of that data just simply rolls off the screen and is deleted. It's not captured. And if you're in analytics or doing any ML or AI, you'll know that part of the battle is having the data and, uh, of course, then being able to label that data. So that's that's really what we've done. We've created a product and a platform called SickBay. A uh, total nod to Star Trek there. And uh, we've created this product that allows us to then really pull together that data that's traditionally been deleted and lost and leverage it for that patient surveillance functionality, operational improvement, and then push it to enhance the patient's clinical record as well. So it's almost like a, it's almost like a blue ocean in many ways. I think a lot of people in the healthcare space for years have wanted to do things with this data. And it's just been very technically hard to get and technically hard to manage and store just at the scale at which you need to do that at. I love the fact that you've you've taken this thing that's an in-situ environment. And there's a long debate to be had about the the rate of change and the pace of change with the technology in hospitals, because in hospitals, people say that change becomes risk and risk costs lies. But at some point, you've got to make some shifts. So I I love the fact you've been able to take those devices that are already in place and, and connect them and I love that you've been able to capture the data and provide all those things we would normally do in an enterprise with business intelligence and so forth and big data analytics now in health, which has been dying for it, if you'll pardon the pun. Well, uh, you know, I think, I, I think that's, that's kind of a deceptive thing. And exactly what you're saying is, is completely true. And the, the part that's deceptive is I think that a lot of people, when they approach this, even just the healthcare organizations, they're approaching it with like, well, if I just get the data. And so they rush to get data in any form or fashion without really understanding the end use case. And what's very unique about our situation is that 
we actually started from a research sort of view. So back in the day, 10 years ago, we were in graduate school and we were trying to leverage this sort of higher fidelity data, the waveform data, the, you know, if you, the little beeps and boops, right? But the actual waveforms on the screen to actually build predictive analytics. Like if I can train a computer to recognize the pattern on that screen or detect an event, then I can recognize those sub-acute patterns in advance and give healthcare professionals early warning, right? Well, here's the thing. If you're building to that use case, you're going to go back to the quality of the data. You're going to go back to how you make sure making sure that you're not downsampling that data. You're going to go and the value starts to amplify or exponentially increase when you start to fuse data from across devices. And that's what most people miss the mark on when they start going down this journey. And so the result is a lot of groups They'll take a one device and they'll build one dashboard for that one device. And then guess what? If you sort of keep, if you follow that logic, you'll end up with 40 devices next to a bedside, all with different dashboards, right? Mm. And that's not scalable. That's not the, that's not the world we live in with, you know, uh, you know, this idea of software defined or scalability, um, like you see in some of the business. You say put in a BI system and you expect all the data to flow into that, and then you can use one visualization. That's essentially what SickBay is, but for that rich patient monitoring data. And so there's non trivial problems and technical details around how do you actually synchronize data? Um, I'll give you uh, a, a really interesting example. Um, when you're looking at uh, patients going in for bypass, or uh, having some sort of brain surgery, or they have a TBI, traumatic brain injury. What is what happens is uh, you can actually get additional brain injury through the treatment, like actually going through surgery, if your blood pressure is not managed appropriately. And so today, uh, you know, you'll be in surgery. Uh, they'll try to use best practices based on population averages of managing that blood pressure. But the brain actually does something called autoregulation. And it tries to maintain a certain pressure of blood going to all your blood vessels in your brain so that it gets oxygenated, right? But guess what? If you put in too much pressure into that brain, it's actually going to start to burst blood vessels and then you get brain bleeds. If it's too little blood going in there, so lower blood pressure, you actually will have parts of the brain die uh, because it's not getting enough oxygen. So that actual magical sweet spot for an individual in that moment of surgery is something that the, the providers today can't see. And if that managed is not managed correctly, you can come out with bad cognitive effects or even death from just the treatment or trying to, you know, go in after that traumatic brain injury. Yeah. So in converse to that, if you can take the brain, you know, ICP data, intracranial pressure data, combine that with the blood pressure data and the other waveforms, there is actually math that's been proven to show you can actually tell the optimum range of blood pressure in real time to providers. That's the difference. That's the difference we're talking about. We're talking about patient-specific real-time recommendations for either you know, blood pressure management or there's a whole long list of things that get into this. But that's the value of this data. It's about making the patient tailored to an individual in that moment so that you minimize poor outcomes and you maximize the chance to save lives and improve those outcomes. 
I'm fascinated by it because, you know, when I when I listen to you talking, I realize that, you know, many organizations from banking and wealth management and finance and aviation, transport logistics, they've often provided more care and more investment in their data for just basic moving of money than we've necessarily invested in the big data and analytics in health. And it, it, that frightens me. When you give us an overview of your company, one of the key points I wanted to kind of introduce the audience to was, you know, through this whole journey, I'm really curious about where Intel came into the picture and, and how they became a partner. I wonder if you could maybe just share some background on kind of where Intel came into the picture from the early formation of the company, but also then maybe you can talk about some of the technology platforms. Definitely. Well, um, we had uh, the pleasure of getting introduced uh, to Intel through one of our other uh, technology partners and actually started uh, working with the sort of IoT group, um, the group that is really interested in expanding uh, compute to sort of the edge of things, right? And so we had an opportunity to start talking to them about uh, investment opportunities and as we were looking to raise our initial uh, Series A. And, and that's where actually Intel came in and got involved. They, in a big, meaningful way, uh, they decided that they wanted to be part of our Series A investment. Uh, we were very thrilled with that. Uh, we've had a tradition of doing well with strategic investors. It's been a very wonderful partnership. I have been very impressed with their organization. I always sort of had a fondness for Intel coming from electrical and computer engineering. Uh, and the, the fact that they can, you know, make things in the order of scale of nanometers, right? <laughs> uh, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty magical. But in particular, the investment in us, I think, uh, they they really got in and started looking at our core fundamental technology. They did some serious under the hood looking and, and were very impressed with how uh, we had built up our platform, looked at uh, our strategy around data and analytics for this space and opening up this really blue ocean of new types of analytics uh, in a way that could be scalably commercialized and deployed. And we're working on a new uh, type of virtual patient monitor for instance, uh, we can do a prototype within a matter of weeks. Uh, we can have it uh, then deployed out into real time, uh, you know, sort of field from a research purpose within a matter of months. So instead of spending 10 years developing a medical device, we can, in a few months, build a prototype that can, can be deployed on hundreds of patients, even if it's just for research, research before you get your uh, FDA or other regulatory clearances. It's really that I think really excited them because it's changing that paradigm. We have We've been working with them on a lot of different levels, including amping up our sort of security and cybersecurity strategies. Uh, they have like world experts in this, leveraging them in our ML and AI areas as well, uh, tapping into their sort of network of experts and, and uh, looking at ways that we can uh, look at uh, federated data models. And so I think it's been... It's been a really good partnership. And, and then I think the, the sort of next logical thing is sort of what happened with COVID. And because uh, we, we talk a lot, uh, Intel is on my board. And when this whole COVID thing came out, it was very clear that Intel was taking a very strong stance of how do we actually help people out there in the world? And they were looking through all of their partnerships. They were looking through their portfolio companies. And uh, we just sort of stuck out as something that made a lot of sense uh, to put some emphasis behind uh, so that we could they could ultimately help with organizations that are struggling. And, and we were very excited too. In that regard, it started because we actually started getting calls from our customers. We knew when COVID was coming out, uh, we were watching we were watching the data models, right? Because we, we deal in data. 
right? So uh, that's the world we operate in. And uh, we started sending out letters to our customers saying, you know, this is coming. Uh, you might want to consider being able to extend your remote monitoring capabilities from what you're doing today. We can do that quickly and efficiently, remotely. Let us know. And we started getting calls from our customers. In that case, they, they started asking, you know, we're in a crunch. We're starting to see these people come in the door. They're flooding our, our ICUs. What can we do to help? And uh, some of them were starting to feel that financial strain. And so we went back to Intel and we said, you know, is there something we can do to work together to solve this problem? And we actually uh, launched a scale serve program. So that's where sort of that came in. So the Intel relationship has been one that's been growing and evolving over the years. Uh, but it is really, I, I cannot emphasize how, uh, how fortunate and how um, blessed we are to have them as a, a partner. And they, they have all the right intentions. Indeed, so, it's, it's a match made in heaven, I would, I would term it as. And uh, I remember seeing the early releases come out, I think it was in when you, 2019 when the original funding came through. And then when the initial block, of, I think it was like $50 million, it was a part of the, the response that Intel made to the global pandemic because they, uh, more than many, were impacted early on because obviously they've got everything from design and engineering on this side of the planet to human beings on the other side and, and partners in the ecosystem and so forth all around the globe. They're in something like 183 countries around the world or more. But when I, I remember seeing this this come about with yourselves and thinking this is just the absolute you know, nirvana uh, with regard to, um, uh, you know, not just from an investment point of view, but also the technology capability. I was fascinated by this anecdote uh, when I was talking to Intel's Bryce Olson recently, and uh, uh, he mentioned that something as simple as a series of calls uh, that he was making asking uh, I guess, you know, medical practitioners and so forth, particularly in hospitals, you know, what do you need? We need to also looking at what, how do, you know, how do, how do we help the space? And it then led to that whole conversation about how Intel and uh, MIC could potentially then put your technology into hospitals, not only in record time, but also to completely transform the intensive care unit environment, such that now it's quite literally saving lives, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I wonder what that initial conversation was like. I'd love to get your insight and kind of, you know, how did that sort of come about and, and what was that initial conversation like? Uh, and then I guess more importantly, how does one respond when a Bryce Olson calls you and announces, hey, I've been chatting with physicians and it turns out we can help them? Well, I think in those early days of the response, and especially in New York, sort of, uh, you, you could see the numbers uh, increasing and the, the death count rising. There was a lot of talk of like, what what can we do? And we saw this from a few different angles. As I said, we, you know, we'd already sort of preemptively reached out to a number of our customers. But what became very clear is these healthcare organizations were, were being asked to deal with a level of innovation and speed at which they're not familiar with working with. And if you were going to do something, you had to be able to do something remotely. You had to be able to, you know, target it into the real pain points that they were evolving and um, I think in in our space in particular, that was this concept of suddenly you found yourself faced with uh, a group of physicians, for instance, that might be at high risk. Maybe they're older. Maybe you have a, a pregnant physician or, or nurse. And there was this question of like, oh, my gosh, these, these people are maybe they've been exposed. We can't put them on the front line. So they're they're out of the play. So not only did that create difficulties in itself with not, you know, with those people not being able to help. But then you you had a secondary impact of now more workload was falling on a smaller number of people. And then you, of course, had the PPE 
problem where you didn't have enough protective gear for individuals. So you really wanted to minimize those interactions with the the patient. And so that sort of trifecta of things coming together, uh, you know, Bryce was calling us and talking about these conversations and we were seeing things in our front lines and with our customers. And it became clear that we needed to uh, make something accessible uh, to organizations so that they could deploy quickly and remotely uh, the bare, like the basics, remote monitoring capabilities to enhance clinical distancing and reduce that PPE utilization. And that's really where it came from. I would say the template for the inspiration uh, for the program actually came from one of those customers that reached out to us earlier in which they were asking for that sort of financial assistance. And I said, you know, we, we can we can move quickly. You know, we talked to them a little bit about the concept of like how we could help them after reviewing their technology sort of stack and what they had in play. And we said, okay, if you can get this through uh, your executive teams, we can, you know, set this up and, and have you going within a matter of weeks. And sometimes it's a matter of days, depending on the infrastructure. But in this case, it was a matter of weeks. And so when Bryce came to us and told us the same story happening again at other hospitals, we we're like, you know what? We need to turn this into a program. We need to make this something that's accessible, quick, and can be turned on within like two to four weeks, right? And we've actually been we've been doing that at hospitals um, uh, where we are, you know, they're coming to us. They're saying we have this COVID issue. We need to expand capacity. Uh, we need to do it quickly. We know this either the second surge is coming or dealing. We're in the middle of a surge, and I need you to enable and turn on more beds so we can do remote patient rounding, right? So your physicians can basically go and look at the trends and the real-time data of the patients and basically give care guidance on these patients without minimizing the quality of care, right? And deliver that sort of attention that they otherwise, it'd be hard to deliver under the current circumstances while protecting as many care providers as we can. And then a secondary benefit, you get to leverage those care providers that are at home and in quarantine, right? If they're able to work. It, it's been an exciting journey. We continue to uh, work on uh, getting this program out to more uh, people. I, unfortunately, of course, in the U.S., right now we're seeing, in many cases, even in, in the right now, I'm in Houston, right, Houston, Texas, and we're seeing an uptick in uh, cases again because of the sort of res- loosening of restrictions. So uh, we do expect this to be sort of a series of challenges that our our customers and organizations have to face. Uh, you know, over the course of the next, over the over the foreseeable future, honestly. Yeah, this thing's not going away fast, and uh, you know, there's a whole show in itself to be sort of had around the conversation about some of those flow-on impacts, which maybe we'll have a separate one. There must have been a point where you know you'd had this sort of conversation, you'd gone through a few of these realizations. I mean, I imagine there must have been a point where uh, after you'd gone through the challenge and you'd worked out that not only is it doable, it had to be done uh, after a series of phone calls and I imagine virtual whiteboard sessions and whatnot, that there was this kind of like eureka moment or an aha moment where you were like, yeah, okay, not only can we do this, but we must do it. I wonder if you can sort of share what that moment was like and some of the sort of next key steps you decided to take sort of actually put in place. Because I guess the the realization, the opportunity is one thing, but then the reality of actually making it happen must have been a heady challenge in its own right. You know, it's so funny you say that there was like, it, it honestly, like, it's almost like people in, and you, you know this too, you've been in healthcare, but there's this people who go into healthcare, I think that the majority of people, whether you're an executive or somebody uh, cleaning rooms, right? 
you go into it because you're there to help people. Like you, you really truly want the time in your life you want to spend making a difference in somebody else's life or your community. And um, when an emergency happens, you run towards the challenge, right? right? You run towards the danger to help others. I don't think there was ever a moment where we said, do we do this or not do this? It was, it was always like, let's do as much and as much as we can, as fast as we can. And it really was just, it was, it was a beautiful thing to behold. It was literally just like, like you would expect a bunch of engineers and, and science nerds as we literally broke down the problem. And then we started checking off the things on the list. How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we scale this? How do we do this remotely? What resources can we use on your team? What resources can we use on your team? How do we make this? Uh, how do we get the legal documents in order so that we can, uh, you know, you know, give this benefit to hospitals? You know, uh, it was it was beautiful, and honestly, it was it was coming together, realizing the problem, uh, getting the executive thumbs up, and then just just hunkering down and and going through the process. In normal circumstances, this is a heady heady undertaking in its own right. Just for one instance. But under the pal of, of, of COVID-19 and a global pandemic, this, this is not just a heady challenge. I mean, this is a Herculean battle of time and resources infrastructure. I wonder if you could maybe just quickly walk us through the brief sort of key steps of what it took to not just deploy sick bay your overall solution in the hospitals already under siege and fighting a global pandemic, but to sort of get through some of those hurdles where people might say, well, you know, we take five years to get a new system in place because that's just our control mechanisms. And you're like, well, we need to do this in five days. That must have been an interesting challenge sort of just from a, from a business point of view, from a logistics and, and, and planning and management point of view, but also then a technology point of view of just getting in there and getting it done. I think you hit the nail on the head just with your question, which is, you know, Herculean uh, task of getting an organization behind a, a new project. And, it, and honestly, it's, that is the hardest thing. It is making uh, the people that we're working with um, realize or bringing them to the realization that it is possible, right? It's the sort of art of the, you know, art of what you can do to make that happen. It, from a technical aspect, because of the way we've built our product and the scalability of it, it's actually quite straightforward. We could install our product on a, a new instance uh, within a day, but it often takes organizations, uh, you know, these are, these are hospital systems and organizations can often be billion dollar you know, corporations of their own right uh, that have many different facets and departments and pol their political struggles, right? And so clearly it's important to have sort of that, I think especially during the COVID uh, time, it's, it's important that they have uh, executive support, right? I think there is a lot of things that can distract people. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of fear just from a person-to-person -person standpoint, I, whether, whether or not that's, you know, something the organization is, you know, messaging or not, it, it doesn't matter. It's I think everybody within the organization is is stressed, is dealing with their own personal impact of how COVID is affecting them and their families. And so uh, sometimes I think that that mental barrier of can I afford to do a new project? I know they they have this idea in their mind of previous projects and other IT infrastructure things, and they think, oh, this is going to take five years. It's going to take one year. It's going to take too many months. We need a plan for something. Like that. When reality, it's as simple as spinning up a VM, getting remote access, and connecting a few interfaces that you probably already have, right? That you probably already have available and you can just copy. 
So, you know, from our perspective, we've we've had a customer install in two weeks. That's the fastest we've seen, uh, where there's that will in a way, and and they have their teams, and they've said, yes, we're going to go do this. It can be done, um, but that that's usually the barrier. The barrier is the the political, the the resistance to I'm afraid um, that this will take more time or take more resources. Um, but I will tell you, in every place that we've deployed. Uh, they're always very pleasantly surprised uh, the lack of, you know, additional resources they have to throw in. You know, it's sort of like, whoa, that yeah. wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Oh, and everybody's using it and loving it. And, uh, and I know, I, I know I'm biased to say that, but I would, I would say that you could go to any of our customers and ask them what they felt about us. And they would give you that answer that uh, it's far more meaningful than they understood it to be at the beginning. It's the penultimate yeah. challenge for any technology implementation or sometimes business systems implementation. I, I know in banking, for example, over the years, you know, a number of banks that we've deployed platforms for, and they would take anywhere between three to five, sometimes six years. And uh, we got to the point where I stripped all the business logic part. We were able to orchestrate and automate uh, with a DevOps tool, standing up a VM in any cloud with any API. In eight minutes, we could build a bank. But it would take eight months to get through the regulatory and compliance and legal and exactly right? one of the um, one of the really exciting things we were able to do. You know, during during COVID, it was interesting. We also work with Cisco closely. We had this would this had been our roadmap for a long time, and we were this year we were launching um, this sort of new way of doing medical device integration inside of hospitals with Cisco, basically allowing institutions to leverage their infrastructure of their Cisco networks. Uh, to bring in these sort of ancillary devices that otherwise wouldn't be included in your data set, like your ventilators and your SpO2 monitors and things like that. And our whole approach to it was we really wanted to make medical device integration accessible. You shouldn't have to buy a whole new set of hardware or put things in the room when when you've already invested a lot in your network infrastructure. And... um, so we did that. But interestingly enough, what it enables, of course, is the ventilator integration. And so we actually had uh, one of our customers, Johns Hopkins, come to us. And uh, they were, they, of course, had uh, impact of COVID and they wanted to expand uh, the number of beds that they were covering for remote monitoring. And they also wanted to make sure that vents were integrated. And they were like, we have these three different vents and we need to stand them up and Honestly, like we have, we've only recently deployed this and we had never done it remotely. And so this was a big challenge for us because we were like, okay, well, normally we'd go on site to train them how to do this and show them how to plug everything in. Uh, But now we needed to deploy across 182 beds, you know, uh, six different types of vent integration (laughs) at their facility. And, uh, And we did it within a matter of weeks. And uh, they they wanted to do it within three weeks, and so um, that's, that's what phenomenal. we did. We 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 allowed them to do advanced medical device integration at scale at their facility with all their different sort of ventilators, which is really cool because I, I think it gives them confidence that one, it's you know they they can use this other places, but I think it it just demonstrates the 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 sort of ease of use that we've designed into and the thought behind we put behind our product in terms of making it that, that sort of scalable infrastructure that you need for this. So. Indeed. And, 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 you know, it's a, it's, it's a game changer in so many levels. I'm keen just to briefly get some, a couple of minutes on the whole uh, 
uh, collaboration that you've had in the partnership with Intel and, and your capability with regard to the Scale to Serve program that sort of drew all this together. Give us a, a quick insight mm-hmm. in a couple of minutes, if you could, of just that whole Scale to Serve program and kind of what that entails. Yeah, so we we recognize that, uh, you know, clearly a number of hospitals were in the middle of the pandemic, whether whether the pandemic uh, was going to impact them soon, whether they were in the middle of dealing with the pandemic, or they were sort of prepping for the second wave of the pandemic, we knew that this need for clinical distancing and the ability to manage patients with less resources on hand, minimize the PPE utilization, all were critical aspects of, you know, responding. And I, and I think from a broader standpoint, too, we wanted to make this technology, which even before COVID was saving lives, right? I mean, leveraging this type of remote monitoring and historical data visualization and analytics uh, can that help improve get patients, getting patients off vents faster with looking at, you know, readiness extubation metrics and things like that. So there's, there's a whole long list of things that benefit hospitals above and beyond just responding to COVID. And so um, with the program, we set it up and it's intentionally called Scale to Serve because it's about empowering your organization, serving those in the medical field, but scaling that capability so that they can feel empowered to confront whatever challenge faces them, whether that's the next wave of COVID or some other challenge they're not unaware of down in the future. Um, currently, right now, we're running the, the program in the U.S., and basically any hospital or organization, uh, one of the hospital system that's interested in participating, they literally just need to contact us. They can go to our website or reach out to Intel, and we take them through a very quick uh, evaluation that can be done in a number in a, a, a one or two phone calls with their technical teams, and essentially... Uh, Intel is sponsoring a lot of this initial deployment work, and we basically can get you up and running within a matter of weeks, uh, of course, depending on your infrastructure and integrating things like then. Ultimately, they get the three months of the sickbay uh, remote suite and analytics sort of bundle uh, that they get to figure out how it works with their organization and use it for the, the purposes that they, they need. And then if it makes sense, Uh, they can continue it on. And if it doesn't, uh, that's okay. We really are here to serve those in the healthcare profession. And it's important that uh, that they know this is possible. And really, so uh, for a minimal time investment on these organizations, they can really figure out whether this is something that is impacting them in a meaningful way. So that was our intention. Well, you know, for listeners, I, I do invite them to do exactly that, to reach out either directly to cells or anybody in the Intel ecosystem and have that very conversation, whether they're currently straining uh, their systems with dealing with COVID-19 or, or not. I think, you know, obviously, this is a fantastic response to the global pandemic. But even beyond that, I think this is, this is such a game changer that it's almost a case what? that it needs to be there rather than not there. And Des, I think I think an important thing that we learned through this entire process is the one thing when when you when people had like our customers, right? When they had the scalable infrastructure, they were able to adapt to the scenarios within days right. or hours, right? So in Houston Methodist, they turned on a new COVID unit that in a part of the hospital that had been closed, and within under a week they were able to turn up all of those beds and spin them up in their, their VICU, their virtual command center. Wow. And um, another facility, they needed to go and move to all virtual rounding. So without even missing a beat, they were able to move to Zoom meetings 
where they could do full case reviews on all of their patients remotely and look at what was going on in real time. So it's, it's, it's not so much about, you're right, it's not so much about the COVID response. It's about preparing for that scalability of what you need to prepare for whatever happens in the future, whether that's the next, the next pandemic or uh, a different a different challenge organization face. That, that thought and time into that infrastructure is so key. And in fact, I desperately want to have you back on the show to have a talk about exactly that, because, you know, there are, there are scenarios where in Australia, we have a thing called the Flying Doctor Service, and it's a, essentially an, an airline funded by, by um, private and, and government funding to have planes fly to rural or remote areas and pick people up who are either sick or had a broken arm or leg or whatever the case may be, um, and flown back to somewhere where they can actually get medical care because there just isn't medical care in some of those remote areas. And in some cases, they're now trying to do Skype remote care and whatnot. I, I can imagine this kind of thing could just extend medical care to places we haven't even imagined before, but uh, that'll be another conversation. What are the sorts of things that uh, you see coming over the horizon for the medical world now that they can do the sorts of things they can with your platform, your capability, both with the support from Intel and, uh, and obviously yourselves uh, as far as uh, medical informatics corp go? Six to eight months, what's, what are some of the things that people need to be talking about either inside their boardrooms or their operational teams to sort of consider uh, and to sort of, you know, actionable things they can take away from this conversation? You know, it's interesting. I think, if anything, the pandemic has really uh, made people question a lot of underlying assumptions about their business and, and, and question about how they need to prepare for the future, right? And uh, we hear that a lot from a, a lot of the healthcare systems we work with, where they're like, okay, we've, we've got a handle on sort of our plan for what we're doing now with COVID, but we really need to rethink our infrastructure and how uh, we prepare for the next, next thing. I, I think it's also shifted very dramatically this conversation about uh, the balance between in-person and virtual care. And that's along the entire spectrum of virtual care. That's challenging vir- virtual care paradigms with uh, you know patients and making general uh, wellness visits to how you manage people prepping to come in for procedures, outpatient pr- procedures, inpatient, how, how you actually as an organization look at uh, leveraging and coordinating resources from like a that you might have like a central facility, like an academic center, and leverage those across all of your uh, smaller facilities. Um, so I think I think what we will see over the next six to eight months is a is an intense conversation and introspection into organizations of looking at the cost dynamics of that and how they can start to play with uh, realigning those resources in ways that make sense for the future. Uh, the reason I think this is important, the reason I'm calling it out is I think before remote care or the idea of telemedicine, even whether you're talking about in the hospital or out of the hospital, I think there was a lot of resistance. I think a lot of um, providers and organizations didn't really know, like the reimbursement models weren't fully baked around it and um, they were starting to merge, but there just, there wasn't, there was a fear that if you shift to that uh, something would be taken away or somebody would be replaced by something. And I think one of the things that this has forced us to force people to face is it's not about, you know, removing doctors. It's about how do you actually, uh, when, when do you engage a doctor? Uh, how can you get engage that doctor effectively? How can technology be used to make that experience uh, enhanced? Right. Um, I think that's really what I see. Um, in terms of our world, you know, uh, it, it, it often conversation starts with basics, like 
the quality and the, the volume and the, the resolution of the data and making sure you have the right infrastructure so that you can uh, be nimble for whatever challenges you face. Um, we're, of course, happy to have that conversation with people. Um, uh, we often talk to organizations about planning for this. And um, I think from a technology standpoint, what we're looking at is how do we move people from where they are today to that predictive, leveraging those predictive analytics, leveraging uh, those operational tools that really start to uh, dramatically impact uh, an organization's bottom line. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, I'm, I'm personally excited around a lot of the innovation we're, we're doing right now in event recognition um, and how that can enhance everything from rev cycle and documentation accuracy to actually helping care teams recognize uh, different things within a particular individual's care plan um, or experience with it while they're in, inpatient in the hospital, uh, whether that's recognize, recognizing a particular clinical event or uh, helping uh, helping document uh, time spent on certain equipment so that uh, you can get the full reimbursement. The organization can be paid for the efforts they've put in, right? Um, I think that that's going to actually result in taking a lot of that documentation burden away from the people on the ground, allowing them to engage the patients more readily, if that makes sense. Uh, indeed. And look, so, it's, it's inspiring to just hear you talk about it because, um, you know, I, I, I can't help but congratulate not only yourself uh, and your associate Craig Rooston on forming this company a decade ago and, and, and building it and growing it to where it is, but also congratulate yourselves and Intel on this amazing initiative as far as the response to COVID-19 and the global pandemic with the Scale to Serve program. And just listening to the passion you have there with what's coming at us in the next six to eight months and beyond, uh, just just kind of put the hair on my arms was standing. I was just thinking, wow, we, we are about to get the point where all those things we used to hear about in the George Jetson uh, cartoons of, of science and technology are now going to hit medical science. And uh, I just, yeah, the future is so exciting and so bright. Well, Emma, it's been an absolute pleasure spending an hour with you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to get to know you, get to know a bit more your company, and certainly have loved the journey you've taken us on, on how you dealt with the whole pandemic response and this scale to program. And uh, I think it's an exciting opportunity with regard to the partnership to Intel and the technologies they bring to the table. And uh, I hope we have you on the program again soon to talk about the next steps post-pandemic. Well, fantastic. I would be happy to come back and, and continue our conversation. Uh, this has definitely been really fun. And I, I just, um, my hope is that uh, more people get to, you know, take advantage of these things so that we can save more lives. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what we're here to do. So. Indeed. Well, we'll definitely have you back on. You have a magic afternoon or evening and uh, thanks again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.